This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law, and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer, or competitor. In this episode, Karon speaks with Dr. Wendy Nung from the University of Melbourne about how competition law is faring in China and what this means for big tech in the largest economy in the world. It's a very cosy, codependent relationship because it suits the economic interests of these companies and also the political objectives of the Chinese government because the Chinese companies, they help the government to collect the data. They also help the government to develop the technologies to engage in surveillance, social control, maintain social order. So they benefit from helping the government do all this. And in turn, these companies are given access to the market. They're given privileges. Here's Karan Beaton-Wells. Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent, BAT for short. These are names we don't hear so much about when talking competition law and big tech. But why is that? After all, these are the tech powerhouses dominating the largest economy in the world, China. To answer this question, we need to understand something about how competition law works in China. And that means coming to grips with its political economy. In this episode of Competition Law, I'm joined by my Melbourne Law School colleague, Dr. Wendy Ning. Wendy's book, The Political Economy of Competition Law in China, was published earlier this year to rave reviews. And she joined me to help put Chinese competition law in context, to explore why the US tech giants have struggled to gain a foothold in this massive market, and also to chat about how issues of data collection and use are seen in that country. Even if Aussie born and bred, Wendy's a fluent Chinese language speaker, and she spent time on the ground, living and researching in China. She's finally attuned to the political and cultural dynamics. So I started out asking her to help us with what might seem a contradiction in terms. A socialist market economy? Wendy, what does that actually mean? Well, I guess no one really knows. <laughs> no one really knows it's been one of those terms. But if you look at what is socialist about it, one is the control that the state has over certain sectors of the economy, and state enterprises do dominate or are the only operators in important strategic industries. So that's one way in which the government controls the economy. The other way is that even though a lot of the decisions, you know, market uh, the allocation of resources are made according to the market mechanism. The state retains a macroeconomic control over the economy, so they still step in and use law as an instrument to, for lack of a better word, interfere or correct what they believe to be undesirable, unfair, or distortionate outcomes. In part, the legalization of the Chinese system has provided the government with legal tools to regulate as opposed to what it relied on before, which was just more you know, bureaucratics doing their thing. When did the first version of what we might think of as competition laws emerge in China and what were they concerned with? The first version was really about government restrictions on 
the movement of goods within China. That was in 1980. But in 1993, there was the anti-unfair competition law enacted and you know, had competition law provisions. Um, there was a little bit on abuse of dominance and a little bit on cartels, but certainly not the type of competition law that we are probably used to seeing. And then there was a pricing law after that that also was another kind of fragment mm, of competition law. piecemeal. Exactly. And in 2008, almost exactly a decade ago, of course the world's eyes were on Beijing for the staging of the Olympics, but it was also a momentous year for competition law because it was the year in which China adopted a fully-fledged competition law, rather aptly called the anti-monopoly law. But the process for drafting that law had begun many years earlier. What were the various forces or factors in the State Council's decision to go down the path of adopting the AML? The anti-monopoly law was seen as a very important part of a legal framework that is needed to support and further develop China's market economy. And it was a really important milestone in the economic reform process, marking their adoption of a market economy. Because after all, why would you need a competition law if you don't have a market economy? Sure, they go hand in hand. Exactly. The other aspect was to help it signal to the outside world that China was committed to the principles that it signed up to in the WTO. Now, competition law wasn't a requirement of China's accession to the WTO in 2001, but they did make commitments to adopt a competition law to signal to other people that they were committed to it. And so in a way, joining the WTO helped them overcome a lot of the internal barriers to adopting a competition law. Speaking of external influences, was the drafting process a closed or opaque process or was there engagement by the Chinese policymakers and drafters with the global competition community? It was a relatively open process because, as you mentioned, there was a lot of engagement with uh, people outside of China. There were a number of conferences held within China to discuss the draft anti-monopoly law, where they invited experts from America, Australia, the EU to provide comments. The drafters were really wanting to adopt a law that reflected international norms, obviously adjusted to suit the Chinese context, but they wanted to understand what those norms were and make sure that they followed them but know why they didn't follow them as well. Does the AML follow what one might think of as the international model of competition law, just in terms of its coverage and its substantive rules? Largely, yes. So it does cover the three main types of conduct, horizontal and vertical agreements, anti-competitive mergers and abuse of dominance. It also does not contain exemption for SOEs, but there are certainly you know, Chinese characteristics to it. And so you have a chapter in the anti-monopoly law that is about prohibiting what we call an administrative monopoly, which is the government restrictions on competition. And that was very, very contentious. As many of our listeners would be aware, Wendy, the way in which rules are drafted and implemented really depends on how the objectives of the law are seen. So tell us a bit about 
those objectives in China and perhaps how they might differ from other major jurisdictions, particularly the US and the EU? Sure. Article 1 is where you find the objectives and there is a mixture of more conventional objectives and a few that are China-specific. So it says it wants to prevent and prohibit monopolistic conduct and protect fair market competition and improve economic efficiency and maintain consumer interest. But there are a couple that caused external commentators quite some angst. So the anti-monopoly law also maintains the public interest and that can be interpreted quite broadly. And it also promotes the healthy development of the socialist market economy, which is, again, something that is very China-specific. Yes, and a catch-all, possibly. You mentioned an objective of protecting fair competition. Well, where does fairness come into it? Because there is this debate going on in the US and the EU, and perhaps a division between them on whether there is a role for fairness in competition, given that fairness is perhaps more a distributive concern than an allocative one? It's a good question. (laughs) There's a lot of reference to fair and orderly market competition. And fair typically goes with orderly as well, even though it's not the case in the language of Article 1 of the AML. But I think in China, fair and orderly are very much intertwined. Of course, the law says one thing about what the objectives are, Mm. but in practice, there may be unwritten objectives at work. Mm. Would you say that's the case in China? Are there other policy objectives that are in the background influencing the way in which the AML is implemented? I think there are because it's an inevitable part of the system in China. So, for example, a number of the enforcement outcomes are compatible with, say, industrial policy or regulatory or other government policies and priorities. There's a definite emphasis on enforcement in sectors that affect people's well-being and stability. Mm. And And that's stability in the social system as distinct from the economic one? I think... From the Chinese government's perspective, they're intertwined because economic stability links to social stability, which also then links to political stability. And then there's also the way in which some of the anti-monopoly law is used reflects that market supervision and regulation type role, which I referred to before, where that's probably where the socialist aspect comes in, where the law is used to supervise the conduct of market players So it's still very much the government steering rather than the market steering economic outcomes. What is it we need to understand in the political system in China that makes perhaps the broader environment for the AML somewhat different to what one might see uh, in a Western political system? The first thing is, you know, China is a one-party state. And so even if you have the... Chinese Communist Party and the government being technically separate. In practice, the party influences and controls the state apparatus, which means that the party policies, they can be implemented at all levels of government. When we're trying to see where potential enforcement areas might be priorities in the future, it would be remiss just to look at the government documents. You would have to go back and look at party documents as well. 
What about other arms of government? And I'm thinking particularly about the judiciary. Mm-hmm. Is there an independent judiciary that holds government to account? There's no separation of powers in China as we understand it because for us the courts are a check on government power and legislative power, but in China it's all part of the same system. And so whilst there are you know, formally bodies that carry out the legislative function, the executive function, and then the adjudication function. They don't provide checks and balances with each other. And in fact, judges are part of the administrative system. So they're almost like every other government official in a way. And a lot of them also will be party um, members. And there are party committees inside particular levels of courts. Well, then what about the administrative system and coming back specifically to the AML? Mm-hmm. Tell us about the administrative agencies that have the responsibility for enforcing this law. Sure. Up until late March 2018, the public enforcement of the anti-monopoly law was divided between three ministries. And in addition to competition law responsibilities, they also had other responsibilities outside competition law. And so this divided enforcement structure had a number of challenges, as you could imagine. So lack of resources. It's a new law. The resources available are scarce and you're dividing them between three agencies. And so at the central level, there were less than about 100 people working in the departments that were responsible for enforcing the AML. Well, that's amazing when you compare that with the Australian Competition Authority that has some 800. Exactly. And the Chinese economy and just the population is so much more than we have here in Australia. So that was definitely a challenge. And then because you have enforcement divided between three agencies, their potential for inconsistency in the way that they apply the law, and also they'll need to have some sort of coordination mechanism to make sure that they're focusing on their own little patch. And so in a way there was one. So there was an anti-monopoly commission that sits above that structure that is supposed to do that work of coordination. But honestly, to date, it hasn't really done much. And then because the ministries have non-competition responsibilities, there's an issue of the lack of structural independence, let alone the lack of operational independence that occurs in practice. And then the final thing is the limited political power that the bureaus within these agencies have. But in late March 2018, the government underwent a restructuring and competition enforcement is now consolidated into one single authority called the State Administration for Market Regulation. And it's a newly created ministry-level authority, sits directly in the State Council. And in addition to the AML, it does have other responsibilities, but they're more really about you know, market administration and supervision. It also does general business registration regulation. It does IP, product safety, quarantine, food and drug administration. So it's this kind of, I guess, super market regulator. And this would have quite a bit of political power, would it not, given you said it sits directly under the state council? Mm, You would hope so. (laughs) It's still early days yet, but this consolidation of enforcement of the anti-monopoly law under this agency is certainly seen to be an improvement of the situation that was before. It doesn't solve all the challenges, but it does go some way in 
resolving some of them. Well, tell us a bit about the culture of public administration in China that would help us understand how these competition agencies or agency now would go about making their decisions and indeed whether or not there's transparency in that decision-making process. I guess it's a little bit different in terms of you know the merger regulation and non-merger regulation because with non-merger regulation you have an element of enforcement discretion, right? Because you can choose which cases to investigate, etc. And so the first thing is that in China, it's not uncommon to have enforcement campaigns. So sometimes enforcement campaigns will be held because they want to seem to be responding to the policies and priorities that are set by the government and the party. That's something that you need to take into account. In terms of how the agencies go about making decisions, In China, there's a practice of decision-making by consensus. So there's a practice of consulting with other government agencies that have an interest in the matter. And all those negotiations and consultations occur behind closed doors. We don't get to see that, unlike in other places where if one government person does not agree with the other, that information might become public. In China, that is very rare. It's a repeat game because the people that you consult, you would often consult in other contexts. So it's about making sure that you maintain that relationship and know when to push certain things or when not to. In the case of abuse of dominance, where much of the debate has been taking place in relation to big tech and indeed much of the enforcement activity, at least in Europe, what's been the record of enforcement by the Chinese antitrust? authorities in that area? Most of the cases have been taken in the past, say, five or six years, and it's been mixed. So there's a combination of foreign companies and domestic companies, including SOEs, that have been investigated and fined under the anti-monopoly law. The more high-profile ones have been against foreign big companies. So, for example, Qualcomm, was hit with a big fine in 2015 and also into digital they made a series of commitments to the regulator as a result of an investigation. And also Tetra Pak had enforcement action taken against them. So those are the main foreign companies. In terms of domestic companies, a lot of them are yeah, smaller local companies. The one that has been probably the most high profile was against China Telecom and China Unicom, which are two state-owned enterprises in the telecommunications sector. But that investigation ended up with commitments and largely it was resolved behind closed doors. So no official decision was made in that case. The abuse of dominance provision in this law is modelled on the corresponding provision in the European Treaty Does that mean we can expect Chinese enforcement in the case of abuse of dominance to mirror European doctrine? And I'm thinking particularly of the hallmark emphasis on powerful companies having a special responsibility not to abuse their position. I haven't seen the concept of special responsibility come into any of the abuse of dominance cases so far. I think it's one thing to take the language of the EU law But in enforcement, it is still really much driven by Chinese concerns. 
And unfortunately, because the decisions are relatively brief, they don't provide much insight into the reasoning process. They generally are provided a, a series of conclusions. It's actually quite hard to see what is actually going on. You do hear Western scholars quite commonly charge the Chinese antitrust authorities with clamping down harder on foreign companies than domestic ones. Do you subscribe to that view? I think it's less a matter of deliberate bias against foreign companies and more a result of the environment, so the political and institutional dynamics in play. Because if you're an agency looking to enforce the abuse of dominance provisions, it's who are the biggest players in the Chinese market. Typically, you have state-owned enterprises and foreign companies who have come into the market early and established that competitive advantage over other companies. So when you're faced with that choice, you can either enforce against state-owned enterprises, which might or might be easy depending on what type of state-owned enterprise you're looking at and the political dynamics in play there, or you enforce against a foreign company, which not to say that foreign companies are not important players. A lot of them have very well-connected and resourced government relations departments, etc. They do a lot of work with the Chinese government in that way, but often I just think it's a result of the political dynamics. And when the agencies have tried to enforce the AML against the big state-owned enterprises, they've come up against those political challenges and it has resulted not in fines per se, but commitments and behind-the-door kind of resolutions. So in the area of big tech, almost all of the enforcement focus has been in Europe and it's been on the large US tech companies, the Googles, Facebooks of this world. Do those companies operate in China and are they likely to run up against the AML in the way in which they've run up against the European competition (laughs) rules? Facebook, Google, Twitter, WhatsApp and YouTube, they're all banned in China. Amazon, which is another one that gets the attention of regulators, they do operate in China, but its market share is really quite small and pales in comparison to Chinese companies. And Uber and eBay were in China, but they failed and they exited the market. What is really important in China is the homegrown Chinese internet and technology companies that operate in China and who are now starting to establish a presence outside of China as well. So you've got the top three. You've got Baidu, the search engine. You've got Alibaba, who is the e-commerce operator. And then you have Tencent, who has the WeChat, which is the largest messaging app in China. But the other thing that's interesting about these Chinese technology companies is that they're not just focusing in one market. They operate in multiple related spaces and they also design their products to have multiple types of services. So for example, WeChat is not just a messaging app. You can use it to buy a coffee or buy a tea. And so it's kind of an app that infiltrates multiple parts of a person's life. Are they starting to move outside of China though? And are they likely to pose any challenge to the US tech companies we've referred to? So WeChat, because I guess... The nature of chat is that anyone can download on the phone. A number of people all around the globe use WeChat because that's the main way to communicate with colleagues and friends, etc. in China. So even if you're outside of China, you'll get into that. 
Didi, I'm not sure if you've noticed, Didi is China's ride hailing app. It recently started operating in Australia. And then you have Alipay, which is the payment solutions arm of Alibaba is now operating overseas. And so they're starting to, and I guess the more that Chinese citizens travel abroad, they move abroad, they will be using those things because they have familiarity with them. Why is it that the large US tech companies are marginal, if at all, in the Chinese market? In order to enter the Chinese market, much like any other jurisdiction, you have to comply with laws and regulations and restrictions. And for these technology companies in particular, in order to get into the market, they have to comply with the government's restrictions on free speech, the free flow of information, and also requirements to share information with the government. And so, for example, Google did have a search engine in China in 2006, but it was a censored search engine. And it stopped that search engine in 2010, saying that it was against the Chinese government's censorship and limits the free speech and access to people's information. And so it's just, you know, companies that aren't willing to comply with those requirements of the government because it's, I don't know, against some sense of a core value that they hold. But there was news just this week that, in fact, Google is going to relaunch in China. How is it going about that, given the government restrictions you've referred to? Project Dragonfly, it's called. Mm. They're planning to relaunch the censored search engine app for China. But in response to this, a number of employees resigned because they didn't agree with Google's bowing down to the government's restrictions on free speech, which were precisely the reasons why it pulled out in the first place. And so I've read you know, a few articles about how maybe this move is related to Google's wanting to access Chinese data because China is the biggest market in the world. It has a plethora of data. And in order for Google to further advance its technologies, it needs access to the data. Tell us, how is privacy understood in China, given the rather different political environment and the level of government control and interference in economic and social lives? Is privacy a value in China? Privacy in China is more of an instrumental good. So it's about, you know, say, protecting your reputation in the community rather than an intrinsic good, such as viewing it as a human right or as a reflection of your personal liberty. Even if China took the view that it was a human right, China has a very different view of the hierarchy of human rights. And it prioritizes the pursuit of economic and social rights over the pursuit of civil and political rights, of which privacy is one. And the other thing would be there are very different expectations about privacy in China. So China doesn't have a legacy of democracy or forms of government where citizens have expectations about privacy from their government. It was ruled by emperors for most of its history. And so protection of privacy is sort of more as being a protection against other people rather than the government itself. But I'm not saying that Chinese citizens don't care about privacy, but research has actually shown that they are just more willing to trade off privacy for other benefits. So if they can see that they've got 
access to lower cost services or they believe that it's important because it enforces or social norms, then they're willing to trade off that privacy in pursuit of these other benefits. So do I take it from what you're saying that companies that collect personal data as part of their business model, they would not be beholden to the same privacy laws that we see in other parts of the world? Certainly companies and most of the companies that do collect this information are private companies. But the thing is, the legal framework surrounding data protection and privacy is really new in China and evolving because the first law became effective in June 2017 called the Cyber Security Law. And there's also been a personal information security specification, which is a standard that is voluntary, that became effective just in May this year. So it's very, very new. We expect a lot more regulations, but those laws and regulations do apply to companies that collect and use personal data. What about government access to that data, which is, of course, behind the concerns you referred to on the part of um, US tech companies, those concerns being that they might have to share or allow the Chinese government access to the data on their users? So Chinese laws and regulations, not just in the privacy and data protection laws, but other laws, expressly allow the state to access data, usually for reasons relating to national security, economic development, and public interest, which are all very broad concepts. That's, the, I guess, the concerning part of it. What, what has happened recently, which is comforting, is that at least in the law, it says that the government ministries that are responsible for cybersecurity, they are required to keep the confidentiality of the personal information and privacy and trade secrets that they access in performing their functions. But how that operates in practice and how that balances against these broader national security, public interest, economic development imperatives is something still to be seen. How would you describe the relationship then between the large Chinese technology companies and the Chinese government in relation to the collection and use of data? I think it's a very cosy, codependent relationship because it suits the economic interests of these companies and also the political objectives of the Chinese government because the Chinese companies, they help the government to collect the data. They also help the government to develop the technologies that enhance the state's ability to collect and analyse the data, to engage in surveillance, social control, maintain social order. So they benefit from helping the government do all this. And in turn, these companies are given access to the market, they're given privileges and regulatory environment that helps them to continue to do their business. And in fact, these companies are developing business models in response to the government's needs. And so there's this really codependent, cozy relationship between both. And often their interests are aligned. There are some minor issues in incidences where the tech companies might speak out against the Chinese government, but they tend to be relatively few. I guess what you've just said would suggest that claims of digital protectionism in the Chinese economy would have some basis to them? Yes, <laughs> that is precisely right. Because of the economic and political and security interests of the state that are implicated by that, it has to, that you can't ignore it. It might not be the driver, but 
it, it's something that you just cannot ignore. A couple of years ago, Mark Zuckerberg was captured on camera taking a jog through Tiananmen Square. The pics went viral, to the amusement of many and derision of some. Or could this be the closest that Facebook gets to connecting with the Chinese population of some 1.4 billion? No doubt, the US tech tycoons will keep trying to crack the China nut. And based on what Wendy's told us, that's going to make for some interesting spectacle. Next on Competition Law, we kick off what will be a two-part series. What's it like to be an antitrust academic in the age of big tech? And is private funding of research placing academic independence at risk? In part one, I'm joined by Professor Daniel Sokol from the US, and in part two, we cross the Atlantic to speak with Professor Janis Lianis from the UK. As you're here, they have very different perspectives. Until then, you can find links to Wendy's book and some of her other recent work, as well as all our previous episodes at competitionlawlore.com. While you're there, please sign up for a weekly email from me about upcoming episodes so we can stay in touch. Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecorded.com and I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. Catch you next time.